All right, good morning, Veritas. Good morning. Uh, if you were here last week, um, you noticed that I was also teaching the Bible up here, and that's not common. Uh, I'm not doing like a hostile takeover of all teaching here or anything like that. Sometimes if, if there's a little mishap in the teaching schedule, you know, there's this domino effect, and so I'm here twice in a row. I guess I'm apologizing for being the guy <laughs> that's up here instead of somebody else right now, so we're just going to move on. Um, we are in the book of 2 Timothy, and um, yeah, if you've got your Bible, please turn there because, man, I don't know, I sometimes... I feel like God is just superintending the teaching schedule such that I would end up having to teach the things that I need the most. And so what might have been a mishap that, you know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm teaching a couple weeks in a row, teaching this text that I wasn't originally supposed to teach, um, man, it's done a work on my soul. And I hope that it will be that in yours also. And the way that this thing starts already should arrest our attention. So we're in the second half of 2 Timothy chapter 2, and he starts with saying, remind them of these things. Remind them of these things. Now, opening words of sections can sometimes seem irrelevant. We just blow right through them. But I want you to hold on to what he's saying here, because it's not just remind them of these things. In fact, the, the Greek language that this was originally written in um, has all sorts of things it can do to manipulate verbs and make them uh, very technical and, and in full living color. The way that this said is kind of awkward in English, but it's not just remind them, but it's just keep on reminding them of these things in this ongoing way. Don't just remind them once and then move on. It's, hey, Timothy, the things I'm about to say, keep on, like, badger them with these things. Hound them with these things. Let them almost get tired of you repeating yourself as you keep reminding them. And so as I thought about the text that's going to follow, it was good that those, that phrase was there on the front end because you're going to see some familiar stuff as we go through this text. And I had to ask myself, the fact that I kind of look at some of these things and think, well, I've heard that before. <laughs> well, maybe God wouldn't need to repeat himself so often if I would actually put stuff into practice that he has said so clearly, right? So what we're going to find are some often repeated things, but I'm telling you, it's because God knows you, God knows me, and he's saying, hey, I'm just going to go ahead and say this again because I can see that you're not absolutely following me to the letter here, so I'm going to repeat myself again. Guys, we never, ever outgrow our need to be retaught some significant things, okay? In fact, I ran, ran up against this uh, quote from Spurgeon, who is a 19th century preacher. On that very thought, he says this, nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. In other words, you bump up against something you maybe thought you knew before, and you find, oh wait, it's not old hat at all. No, in fact, there's a breadth to it and a depth to it that I didn't even get before, and so it's going to go deeper and broader and capture more of my soul. That's what I'm trusting God will do with his word uh, this morning. So he says, keep reminding them, and now let's finish what he's going to remind us of. He says, keep reminding them of these things 
and charged them before God not to fight about words. This is useless. It leads to the ruin of those who listen. So specifically today, it's keep reminding them not to fight over words. So have you ever talked to anybody who is just completely self-absorbed? Have you ever talked to anybody that just only wants to be heard, and you can tell because every time you open your mouth, they're actually just thinking about what they're going to say next, right? I mean, this is that idea. They love to quibble. They love to fight. They love to dominate. They just love to have the last word, win the last argument. That's what he's talking about, and, and it's pretty intriguing to me that the most pompous windbags that we know of in the whole Bible are actually the most religious people, the Pharisees, Right? If there was any group of people in our whole Bible that used to love to fight over words and quibble over minor things and constantly want to win every argument, it was the Pharisees, and they were the most religious people that we bump up against in the Bible. That should tell us something, right? At one point, Jesus says, you know what? You are straining out a gnat and gulping down a camel. What he meant by that is you're so nitpicky, so looking at all these old things and fighting, 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 fighting over all these things that in the meantime, you're neglecting things like justice, mercy, faithfulness. He lists those things. He says, man, I wish you spent as much time pursuing God's justice and righteousness and faithfulness as you'd about these little nitpicky fight, 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 right? Well, the fact that the most religious people tend to be the ones that are the most pompous, the, the ones that do this very thing, just fighting about words, and actually leading to the ruin of many people, that should be instructive. So what I'm trying to say is those people that are constantly bickering, constantly fighting, constantly wanting to quibble over words, it's not just irritating. It's not just bad manners. It ruins people. Okay? He, he says this leads to the ruin. Like the word that, that this, this is, it, it's our word catastrophe. It leads to catastrophes. It's not just that they've got poor manners. This kind of thing is horrific. It's damaging to God's people. So today he's going to give one more shot at getting all of us to pick our battles, to stop being so quick to fight over words. He's going to give one more shot at helping us to major in the majors, not in the minors, and to honor Christ uh, with our words. So last week, if you, if you glance in the text just above, he used these three metaphors of a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Apparently, Paul's really into threes at this point because now he's going to give us three more illustrations th this week. This time it's a valued worker, an honorable vessel, and a servant uh, of the Lord. So let's look at these. All right, I'm going to take them one at a time. So I'm going to start again in verse 14 and talk about the valued worker, okay? Remind them of these things. We just read this, but remind them of these things. Charge them before God, okay? God is the one he's calling his, to witness this. Don't fight about words. This is useless, leads to the ruin of those who listen. Instead, Timothy, be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Avoid irreverent and empty speech, since those who engage in it will produce even more godlessness, and their teaching will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus, they're among them. 
They've departed from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. They're ruining the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. So, I'm going to talk about the valued worker, this first metaphor. Um, you know, you see help wanted signs all over the place, and I'm hearing from lots of small business owners, people that employ others, that finding good workers is pretty hard right now. I was just talking to a, a friend of mine that has a small business, and one of his workers just up and quit, just, just left, just decided, oh, I'm done, no notice, no whatever. Well, then the whole domino effect of, oh, now everybody's got to, you know, step in to try to take the place of this one unfaithful worker. In fact, he himself had to change all of his family plans, everything, because, you know, Somebody just decided, oh, I don't want to work anymore, right? So there's this whole thing that we've got just, just pervasive around our culture right now of just unfaithful workers. Here, what he's trying to say is, be the kind of worker, you guys, that when the boss steps up to your station, right, to see what you've been doing, you just step back and you just present your work. Here's what I've been working on because you're unashamed, right? You're unashamed. You're a good worker. You've been doing what you've been called to do. You're a faithful worker. And so here comes the boss. And you're like, there it is. You asked me to do X. That's exactly what I've been doing. I, I'm a valued, faithful worker. You get his approval. And you're not ashamed, right? Now, the immediate application to this chunk of the passage is actually to Timothy himself. Look again at verse 15. It's, it's one of the maybe more famous, I guess, verses in this, in this whole little book, but this is specifically to Timothy. Be diligent, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Here's the reason he's going to first focus on Timothy and broaden it to the rest of us. You guys heard of that, that phrase, uh, the bully pulpit? Bully pulpit? Give me a nod. Okay. Bully pulpit, it, it was first a phrase that was uh, by President Teddy Roosevelt, who early in the 1900s was the president. He used, he used that uh, term bully pulpit in a positive way. So back in the early 1900s, bully meant good, like really solid, like the bully pulpit. Like somebody said, well, bully for you meant ah, good for you, you know? So he was saying the bully pulpit, in other words, I can use the, the microphone, I can use the megaphone in a good way, powerful way, it strengthens people. Well, that phrase has evolved, and now when we think bully pulpit, we think about people that bully others through the pulpit, right? And that's what's going on in our day, a bully pulpit. And the problem is, that we've got pastors, leaders, who stand up with their Bible, and they get people all riled up. They get fighters going, right? They want people to quibble and fight and, and lean into fights, and often to a ruinous end. People are damaged. That's what he's trying to say. The tendency is to get in fights and quibble, and it's going to lead to ruin. But Timothy, don't be like that. That's what he's saying. Don't be like that. So we've been listening, the, uh, several of us, many of us, maybe many of you in here have been listening to this new podcast that just came out called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Have some of you seen this? It came out by Christianity Today a few weeks ago. And it's just catching fire. I've got friends across the country. Hey, have you seen this? And sending me links. I mean, it's a lot of Christians right now are leaning into this whole thing. So the story is about 
Mars Hill Church out in Seattle. Uh, about seven years ago now, this, this kind of skyrocket rise to prominence, this church and its pastor, Mark Driscoll, kind of caught the nation, you know, nation's attention, and he was being asked to speak all over the place, and he was this kind of rowdy, violent kind of preacher, and caught a lot of people's attention, got a lot of people riled up, right? And about seven years ago, the whole thing just absolutely collapsed, and so this podcast is about what happened with this meteoric, like, uh, rise to capture everybody's attention, and then just the decimating fall. Well, here's what the podcast even says in its description. The issues that plague Mars Hill and its founder, Mark Driscoll, Dangers like money, celebrity, youth, scandal, and power aren't unique. And only by looking closely at what happened in Seattle will we be able to see ourselves. Here's what I'm finding as I'm going through this this podcast is I feel like God's constantly making me look in the mirror, constantly saying, this is not some unique thing. We're not just looking at some historical artifact. We're looking at something that seems to be plaguing the evangelical Christian world right now, and all of us should be paying attention, right? Let's not just think, oh, man. It's like, you know, when the the Pharisee goes in and says, man, I'm just glad I'm not a sinner like this dude right here, you know? And Jesus says, no, you should be the guy that's beating his chest saying, oh, be, be merciful to me, God, the sinner, right? What we're supposed to be doing is looking at this and saying, hey, I'm culpable. I'm not a better man than that. We're not a better church than that. Lord, what do we need to learn from this, right? James 3.1 is maybe one of the most terrifying verses to any of us that open this book to teach. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that you will receive a stricter judgment. Don't be eager to be a teacher of the Bible because I'm telling you, God's going to judge you more strictly. So here's what I want to do. I just want to glance again at these verses that we just read. And what are some of the warning signs that I think he's trying to say to us? This, the reason that this is still in our Bibles 2,000 years after having been written is to give us some warning signs. So the first thing is this. When you start listening to somebody teach the Bible, right, and I hope like Rebecca, Mark, some of you guys have sweat on your forehead right now because this is, I mean, you guys are like in the crosshairs, Germany, me. Okay, first, listen for the word of truth. Look at again at verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed. Why? Correctly teaching the word of truth. You guys, when you start listening to somebody teach you the Bible, do you walk away remembering the preacher's rantings or stories or whatever? Or do you remember the pure truth of God? It's like Timothy You should be almost transparent that people kind of see through you to see the truth, God's truth. That's what they need to hear. So one of the first things is like a warning sign. Make sure that people are actually pointing you to the word of truth, that you remember what God is saying, not what the spokesperson is saying. As you start listening to somebody, look at that very next verse, verse 16. Listen, you guys, for irreverent and empty speech. Listen to see if the one teaching you the Bible is using irreverent or empty speech. Does a preacher go for shock value? That's one of the things, honestly, that Mark Driscoll was famous, maybe infamous for, is that shock value. Wanting to, you know, pierce us with things that, oh, can you say that from the kind of thing? And just loving to just push the envelope for shock value or just purely entertaining. 
It's just empty speech. It doesn't do anything for anyone. It might get a good chuckle. It might get a good round of applause. But it's empty. It does nothing for anybody. He says, don't be caught up with irreverent or empty speech. The next thing that he says to watch out for, he says, watch for the fruit. He says, you know what? This kind of stuff is going to produce even more godlessness. Like what comes in the wake of this teaching? What comes in the wake of this movement of this, of this church? Because if it's producing even more godlessness, look, he gets really vivid, you guys. He calls it, he says it's like gangrene. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. I'm just going to throw out a warning. Don't necessarily Google gangrene. <laughs> so I, I went ahead and paid the dumb tax on that. I'm like, you know, I'm a teacher of the Bible. I should actually learn what gangrene is. And so I just went to, the, I thought, the safest place, the Mayo Clinic, like, you know, hey, what's gangrene? And the images that showed up, I was like, oh, wow, I could have gone my whole life and not seen what I just saw of a picture of gangrene. So many, a lot of medical people in here know what it is already, but it's, it's where tissue, especially often on the extremities, somebody gets an injury, maybe, you know, a, a wound from a, a gunshot. It was often happened in military uh, exchanges, or you get a leg crushed in an accident, whatever, your extremities don't get blood. Life-giving, oxygen-filled blood. And so what happens is your, your tissue just starts dying from the ends back. And it is the most horrific, ugly, poisonous thing that goes on and will ultimately, if not checked, kill you. I, Paul, you guys, is using that vivid description intentionally. When you have bad, rotten teaching, it's like gangrene. It just starts killing from the fringes in. It's ruinous. It's poisonous. And it might start on the fringes and, oh, that just chuckle, chuckle, whatever. And then it just starts eroding and creeping in and it stinks and it's death. And pretty soon the whole thing can collapse and die because it goes unchecked. One of the most treatable things goes left unchecked. So I'm just saying, look for the fruit. You guys, he names the names of the people who did... Like, you might even be shocked. Is he actually saying the name Mark Driscoll and Marcel? The reason I'm emboldened to do that is because that's what Paul does. He looks at the people that are doing this. And he goes, hey, watch those two dudes because this is what they're doing, right? Which takes me to the next thing because watch for, this is another thing to watch for, watch for those that twist foundational truths. They twist foundational truths. What these two dudes were doing, they started departing from the truth, saying that the resurrection had already taken place. And he's ruining the faith of people. Here, here's what they were doing. Well, you guys, you think there's some future resurrection of all people? No, you guys, that's not what Jesus meant. I know the Greek. I know the ancient languages. No, what it really means is resurrection is just the new life we have right now in Christ. There's no future bodily resurrection. There's no hope after the grave. No, no, no. Right? Completely discounting... <laughs> The whole gospel story, completely discounting the hope we have in Easter, not just for our Jesus' resurrection, but for ours, they, they just start whittling it away. So what I'm saying is that's what these two dudes were doing. But just watch 
When these guys all of a sudden with some kind of high hand start eroding your trust and confidence in some of the most foundational truths of the Christian faith. And all of a sudden they know a little better and it's this warning sign. And in fact, as you go through this podcast, Mark Driscoll actually changed and morphed his teachings at times, seemingly to kind of catch the wind of what he thought would be kind of gather his audience more and would quickly even change on some of these cardinal truths. Why? Because he was just trying to gain an audience for himself. Watch for that, which takes us to the very last one of the warnings. Watch for people who have a hunger to be known, a hunger for preeminence. Now, where do I get that? Look at that very last um, verse there. He says, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who calls on the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Well, if you trace back, so in most of your Bibles, it's either in bold or highlighted, that part that's actually a quote from the Old Testament. Well, if you trace that back, and a lot of your Bibles have little footnotes to tell you where, where's this verse coming from that he's that he's referring to here, well, he's taking us back to Numbers chapter 16. And in Numbers chapter 16, it's the story about the, the rebellion of Korah. I'm just going to give you the quick story. I do think it'd be instructive, especially if you're one of the connection group leaders, to go back and just read all of Numbers 16. I did it yet again this morning to have it locked into my head. So the story is basically this. Here was Moses, who just a couple chapters earlier in Numbers chapter 12, we are told Moses was a humble man, not just humble, the most humble man on the planet. No one more humble on the planet than Moses. So here's this humble guy leading, and here steps up Korah and a handful of other leaders that just are tired of one dude seemingly getting all the attention, seemingly getting all the limelight. Now, that attention wasn't going to Moses' head. He was humble. They wanted some of that action. They wanted the prominence. They wanted the preeminence. So they started this rebellion. And by the time it gets done, they are like, we want some of that. We want, give us, you know, elbowing out Moses and Aaron. Give us the front stage, right? By the time you get to the end of the chapter, God's like, oh, no, we're not going to have any of that. The ground opens up and swallows them into hell alive and closes back up over them. God makes a very clear statement. That's what he's saying at the end of, of this little section. Look, the Lord knows those who are his. And that, that rebellious, that, those leaders that are just getting attention and getting a following, and he'll even describe in numbers how many people start following these guys. He's like, no, 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 that's got to be cut off. Kind of like gangrene has to be cut off. <laughs> it's a scary thing. He's saying, Mess with my people, and I will take you out. Start leading my people astray, and I will take you out. I think he's trying to give a strong warning to Timothy. Don't mess around with this. I'm serious. God, throughout the ages, when this kind of thing starts happening, there are people that aren't trying to give glory to God, aren't trying to be, in a humble way, representatives of God, but want the attention for themselves. God knows how to cut them out. <laughs> it's the passage that he quotes to Timothy, right? So watch for people who want to be known, right? God knows, God sees, God will protect his people. And it might be at the expense of taking down people like Korah, Hymenaeus, Philetus, and now we could fill and dot, 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 so many others, even right now. So, church, this sounds heavy. It should be. There's never been a time 
in all of history where we can't all of a sudden start flocking to because of social media, because of podcasts and all this. We can start following these people and they can surge to the top and get preeminence. We have to be careful, you guys. Be so careful of who is teaching us God's truth. Are we seeing Jesus in all of it? Are we seeing an approved worker who's rightly just giving us the word of truth or somebody who's going to take us into ruin? Okay? Got to be careful. All right, let's go on. Because the next illustration he gives is an honorable vessel. Look at verse uh, 20. An honorable vessel. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay. Some for honorable and some for dishonorable. So, if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, well, man, he'll be a special instrument. He'll be set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Flee, then, he says, from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So verse 19 actually is kind of the hinge between these two points because on the one hand, we're supposed to you know, get away from those who are ruining us with mistruth, with lies. But now it's also get away from those who have ruinous passions. Ruinous passions, their character. So I, I'm going to read these verses from uh, the message, Eugene Peterson's translation, because I think it's helpful. He says this, in a well-furnished kitchen, there are not only crystal goblets and silver platters, but also waste cans and compost buckets. Some containers used to serve fine meals, others to take out the garbage, become the kind of container God can use to present any and every kind of gift to his guests for their blessing. So he's saying, if you want to be a special instrument, if you want to be set apart, if you want to be useful, you've got to get cleaned up. Okay, we, we get this, right? There's all sorts of vessels. I, like, I was just thinking, now we've got grandkids, so we've got those little you know, mini potty things. And if any of them does what they do in those little potty things, like how fun is that to take that vessel of putrescence? How can that little kid produce such? Like, anyway, and you got to uh, get it cleaned up, right? So there's those. But then I've got in my, in my same house these really cool glasses that my, my dad, who's now passed away, but he had these cool glasses, and we were kind of poor, so we didn't have very many nice things. He had a few, so I've got these four glasses, and man, those, I only bring those out at special times. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, get, we, we understand the difference between, oh, that kind of thing, and then, oh, man, here, here, drink from this. This is a special vessel, this special glass kind of thing. Here's, here's what he's saying. Which one do you want to be? Which kind of vessel do you want to be? And if you want to be the kind that's presentable, that, that, that God you, useful for the master of this house, then you've got to run from some stuff and run toward other stuff. You've got to flee from st- some stuff and pursue the other stuff. You've got to run from youthful passions, he says. Now, youthful passions immediately, often we think, especially with the, with the word passion in there, sexual passions. And of course that's in there. Flee from sexual passions lust, passions. But it's more than that. Youthful passions are self-asserting, right, yourself. It's, it's self-indulgence. It's selfish ambition. Don't be like that, that youthful, selfish person, just headstrong, obstinate, arrogant. You got to get away from youthful passions and all the collection of stuff that that would be and run toward, chase down, he says, righteousness, kind of life that God smiles upon. 
chase down faith. Chase down what it looks like to trust, to be prayerful. You're actually depending on God, aware of God, talking with God. There's a, a level of faith that's demonstrated. Love, like you worship, you adore God. You, you sing to him, you pray to him, and you love others preeminently. You really believe because God is so magically, supernaturally transform you that you find yourself loving other people and peace, this contentedness, this gratitude, which also bleeds over into my desire to have peace with others because I have such peace with God, right? So pursue, run after righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with others who are doing the same. Get in the company, lock arms with those who are chasing the same kind of stuff, right? Chase down those things along with those who also love those same kind of things, and you're going to be safe. They're going to insulate you from the ruinous, youthful passions. So the very last uh, metaphor that he uses is a servant of the Lord. So let's look at that. Verse 23, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes. So he's coming back, same theme, right? Reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know they breed quarrels. Okay, how many of you have been involved in a foolish ignorant, ridiculous dispute lately. How many of you have been in one just this last week? This morning? <laughs> On your way. Maybe after you got your seat right here. <laughs> like, I've just, just this week, I, I'm running out of time. I shouldn't do this. But just this week, my wife and I had the, the biggest, longest dispute. You know what it was about? I was sitting at the kitchen island. She's cooking up some eggs for our nephew that's living with us. And she banged the spatula to get the eggs off the spatula harder than I thought was necessary. I'm like, what do you do? You know, of course, I don't keep that thought to myself. No, it, that thought comes right out of my mouth. And suddenly we're having this like hour long. It's the most ridiculous things. Like when was the last time Teresa and I have actually fought over like how to raise kids or grandchildren? Oh, that, that stuff never comes to the top. No, it's, you're banging that too hard. You? you know, like, what I'm saying is this is so quick for all of us to do, right? So what if, us, what, what if all of us actually decided we're going to avoid ridiculous, empty quibbling and exchanged it for this? Look at verse 24. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. No. You got to be gentle to everyone, able to teach, patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Look, perhaps God's going to grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. They're going to come to their senses. They're going to awaken, right? Escape the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. What if we exchanged our quickness to quibble for gentleness? We're actually just nice, kind. Some of your translations translate that word kindness. We're able to teach. We're not trying to win. We're not trying to dominate. We're trying to teach. Maybe there's a reason for this. Or that. So we want to teach. We want to instruct with dialogue. We're patient. And most of translations actually do a better job, I think, even than this one. Patient when wronged. It's not just patient. It's patient when wronged. So in other words, you take the hit and you're patient. You don't, you don't treat them as their sins deserve. You are patient. You bear with it. You're kind. You're instructing your opponents with not just gentleness, but humility. You're, you're, you're trying to get, why? You're trying, if you're really trying to win them, they've got something that they're, they're, they're thinking wrong. They need to repent in their mind, but not toward you. They, they need to repent toward God, right? If there's something really of value that you're trying to bring to the table, you're trying to win them to God, not to your argument, 
And so the character has to come through. You have to bring it, right? And instead of every opponent being seen as an enemy to be taken down, the perspective he gives here, you guys, is a game changer. I want you to reread those last couple verses. This is a game changer. Instead of looking at my opponent as somebody to best, somebody to clobber, somebody that they're going to cry uncle, or I'm, I'm just going to keep going in. No, no, no. You have to realize there's a spiritual battle on the important things. A really intense spiritual battle. Here's the picture he gives. He pictures in those last couple verses that the devil is like this grim hunter, this dark, grim hunter. And he goes after people, and when he captures them, they don't see it coming. They have no idea. They're just the ignorant fawn or whatever, you know what I mean? And they get snared. They get captured. But then he doesn't just kill them. No, no, no. He drugs them. He intoxicates them. And suddenly, they start, in, in his captivity, start verbalizing, oh, this is actually the way it's supposed to be. Oh, suddenly, I'm, I'm voicing things that aren't even true. Like, he has, he's bewitched them and intoxicated them. What he's trying to say is, there's a spiritual battle. The only thing that can awaken people is not your tyranny. It's not your ability to win an argument. There's a spiritual rebirth that's got to happen. There's got to be an awakening. God and God alone is going to be able. So what you want to do is use the tools that the master has given you, and that is truth and the character that is associated with truth to come to them because then maybe, maybe God will be the one to grant them repentance. This has got to be a prayerful engagement. We don't just go after fights to win, put one more notch on our belt of the wins. No, no, no. Guys, do you really believe that that person out there that thinks wrong thoughts, right, is the enemy? You guys, here's the reason I know this really landed with me is I was that guy. I was that guy intoxicated with lies about God, about the world, about me. It took the truth of the gospel to break through and pierce through and open my blind eyes, unstop my deaf ears to where I could honestly finally hear from God and God alone. It took somebody to point me to the truth of Jesus Christ to awaken me out of my stupor, out of my, my intoxication from the devil. So here's what he's saying. Guys, let the devil use anger. Let the devil use selfish ambition. Let the devil be the guy that twists the words. Go back to Genesis 3. This is the devil's playbook, right? For domination, for getting your way, twisting what God is saying. That's the devil's Stay away from that. The Lord's servant is one that says, I'm here just to represent him. I'm just trying to bring you truth. I don't want to fight. I don't want to... I don't want to beat you. I want you to know Christ. I want you to be freed from this devil that has taken you captive. And I'm going to do my best. I, I can't actually control what goes on in your heart, your soul. I'm going to do my best to, to wrap myself in the character of Jesus Christ, speak the truth of Jesus Christ. I'll make God grant you repentance. Because the opening verse of this whole chapter was, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
Guys, may we be so transformed by the grace and truth of Jesus Christ, so convinced that his grace is good, (laughs) so convinced that his truth conquers every lie I've ever concocted in my mind, I just want people to know him, right? I just want people to know Jesus. I don't want to win the day. I don't want to fight. I just want people to know Jesus. Man, if that... If this could be a 2 Timothy 2 kind of church, what a city on a hill we could be. Veritas, truth, wrapped in the grace of Jesus Christ, who forgives, who gives new life, who opens blind eyes. Man, may that be true of us. So let's, let's pray and ask God to do that for us. Jesus, um, how is it that we once again, kind of step back into lies, step back into, I don't know, using the playbook that we used to use before we ever knew you, Lord Jesus. Please forgive us. And may it be true, Lord, that you are transforming us so abundantly, so miraculously that we're going to find people wanting to come in and wanting to hear, wanting to lean in, wanting to be transformed, wanting to repent because we've courageously, boldly spoken truth but wrapped in the character, Jesus, your character that you are bringing into us. Oh, please, Lord, make it so. Make us to be followers of Christ servants of God, Lord. That's what we want to be, to your honor, to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.